the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Joshua. Praise to the God who reigns above. God had been faithful to keep his promise to the children of Israel. They were about to enter the land of promise, the land of Canaan. God appointed Joshua to lead the people. He told Joshua to be strong and courageous. God reassured Joshua that the victory was already theirs, should they continue to walk and trust the Lord. We have come to their first obstacle, the walled city of Jericho. We join Pastor Will in Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. The whole theme of the book of Joshua is victory in Jesus. While we don't have a promise from God to dwell in a piece of land in the Middle East that God has given every place we put our foot in the Middle East to us, while we don't have that promise, the Lord has promised us in the New Testament that we can escape the corruption that is in the world and have an abundant life. He has promised us that in Second Peter chapter 1. He's promised that to us. The principles here apply to us about how we can have victory in Jesus. The Lord spent the first part of chapter 1 urging Joshua, remember, to be strong and courageous, right? To be strengthened and to be courageous because it was time to get into the battle. And that's the first way we're going to have victory. We have to get up, get into the battle. We have to be strengthened by the Lord, not go in our own strength. And we have to have the courage to move forward toward enemy ground, toward enemy ground. And Joshua did that. He told Israel it was time to move. He got the people gathered and got the people going and the people wholeheartedly follow his lead. Now, when we get to chapter two, We're going to get to the next step. Now, remember the first time Israel got to the edge of the land, they sent out spies, right? Well, they're going to do that this time too. But unlike last time, Joshua's going to send the spies in a bit differently. And so, yes, they're going to get the lay of the land, but what they're going to find is what they need to be victorious. They're going to find confirmation for why they should just trust the Lord and move forward, why they should live by faith and not by sight. So chapter two, verse one. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out of Shittim, or Shittim, two men to spy secretly, saying, go view the land, even Jericho. And so they went, and they came into a harlot's house named Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, behold, there came men in hither tonight of the children of Israel to search out the country. And so the king of Jericho sent unto Rahab, saying, bring forth the men that are come to you, which are entered into your house, for they have come to search out, spy out all the country. So here we see that Israel's camp there in Shittim. It's eight miles directly across from Jericho. It's about a two or three hour trek from where they're at to Jericho. So not very far to walk. And he sends them, it says, to spy. And then it says secretly. They're to covertly gain information, but he does so secretly. Remember what did Moses do? He had each tribe choose out one man. 
from each tribe, and they selected the men, and then he sent them out to go spy out the land. Joshua doesn't mess with any of that. He secretly, without confiding in anyone else, selects two men he can trust to do the job right. Perhaps he remembered that only two came back with the right report last time, and maybe figures out there's no need to send more than two. I don't know. But he picks two men he can trust to do the job right, because he wants intel, not doomsayers like the last time. So he says to them, go view the land, even Jericho. That is the place where they're going to first look. So it's not that they're just going to get the lay of all the land, but specifically they're going to check out Jericho and figure out what the situation is there. Jericho is situated on a perennial spring that issues 30,000 feet of cubic water daily there at the bottom of the foothills of the Judean desert. It's there in the valley, the Jordan Valley, but it's at the bottom of those foothills in the desert. It irrigates a 2,500 acre stretch, making this entire region an oasis. It was known as the City of Palms, and it was considered today the oldest known city in the world. If you wanted to go east or west, around this area, you had to go through Jericho. Now, do we have that uh, image that I sent? We can get it put up there. Oh, good. Perfect. This is the walled situation there. If you look, you see the little soldiers on the bottom. That's where you would start if you were going to attack Jericho. The city is guarded by, at the bottom, an 11-foot stone abutment, and then it supports a 35-degree, 35-foot-long earthen embankment. There's two walls here. The abutment at the bottom, you would have to scale that. Then you would have to scale another wall just to get to this place with a steep incline up to another wall. That's why it calls it the walls of Jericho. To get up there, you had to climb an additional six foot thick mud brick wall that was about 25 feet high. So if you survived getting up over the first two walls and then you got to that embankment, if you survived that and finally reached the actual city walls, that would be 46 feet high that you'd have to climb and those walls were seven feet thick. Now, because of the steep angle up, you would not be able to set ladders there because the angle was too steep, and you could not use a battering ram even if you could survive that long because of the angle. So the only way to defeat this type of protection was by laying siege to a city. But because of the spring inside the city, you couldn't starve out their water supply. And the time that Joshua was going to attack, it's just after harvest. When they did excavations of the burned city of Jericho, because Joshua burns it after they defeat the people of Jericho. When they did the excavations, they found jars full of grain all throughout the ruins. The people of Jericho could have held out, not for several months, but for several years. These guys are sent to find some kind of weakness that can be exploited. So it says they went and they came, they went into the city and they came into a harlot's house named Rahab and they lodged there. And harlot does not mean innkeeper. If you have a newer translation, sometimes it says innkeeper. She was not a pleasant innkeeper. She was a prostitute. Now, excavations revealed that in that embankment there, the grassy part in the middle with the steep incline, that that is where the poorest people in Jericho lived. They lived in homes that were built on the embankment and against the upper wall, so against the top wall all the way up there. That's where they lived. That would not, of course, be the safest place to live during wartime, so these people would be the most fearful, of course. 
It's interesting, when they did the excavations of Jericho, they found one spot along this wall on the embankment on the north side of the wall. It was the only spot to survive the collapse of the walls. The only spot. It was an area near a tower on because it's built against the tower on the north side. Many believe that that's where Rahab lived because that would be the only place that they could get over the outer wall from a window in her home if it was up against the north side where the outer wall kind of reached it as well. It's interesting if that's what the case, it means that the walls fell down everywhere except right where Rahab's house was, which means that God protected her home in addition to her and her family, which we'll get to in a minute. This is probably why they chose the house of a harlot is because it would provide an easy escape route if the spies were discovered which they were, verse two. And it was told the king of Jericho saying, behold, there came men in here tonight of the children of Israel to search, to spy out or scout out the country. Canaan's interesting, the land of Canaan, because it's mostly comprised of independent city-states. It wasn't kingdoms per se. But many suspect that Jericho was the capital city of the Amorites. And thus, this would make this guy one of the Amorite kings, like Sihon and Og, who are on the other side, Jordan. He would have been the king of the Amorites on this side, Jordan. And so, that would make him an important individual. Well, it mentions that it says they came in, King James says tonight, that's not a good translation. It just means late that afternoon because the gates would have been shut at nightfall. They came in late that afternoon, hoping to get in right before the gates shut and kind of do it unnoticed, but they were noticed. And no king, no matter how secure he may feel in his city, is going to let spies roam free to find a weakness. So the king, verse three of Jericho, sent unto Rahab saying, Bring forth the men that are come to you, which are entered into your house, for they have come to spy out the country. The king appeals to her loyalty. These guys are here to spy out our city, to see how they can conquer it. So you need to be a loyal citizen and bring them to me. Well, look at verse four. And the woman took the two men and hid them and said thus, there came men unto me, but I didn't know where they were from. And it came to pass about the time of the shutting of the gate when it was dark that the men went out. Where the men went, I don't know. Pursue after them quickly, for you shall overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof of the house and hid them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order upon the roof. So the king tells her, do your duty as a loyal citizen and bring these guys to me. But she shows loyalty to who? To the spies. To the spies. She makes up this story about how they left and she didn't know where they were from. She knew exactly where they were from. We'll see in a moment. She knew who they were, but she makes up the story and then she convinces them to leave quickly so they don't lose them. So they don't search the home for them. Why? Because she had hidden them on the roof in a pile of stalks of flax. Now, flax, these things here, they were uh, blue-flowered reeds used for making linen cloth, which likely shows that prostitution was not her only means of income. She was very likely selling some type of cloth material. So at least the spies, they, they smelled really nice where they were hiding for their lives. Now, we do need to address the fact that she lied because there are those who say that lying is acceptable under certain circumstances. For example, war being one of them, otherwise a spy can't do his job. Some will try to justify it by saying the Bible praises Rahab for lying to protect the spies. They'll say the Bible also praises the Hebrew midwives who lied to Pharaoh to spare the baby's lives that he had said to kill. And while I cannot answer whether it's okay to lie to save a life or to do your job as a soldier, 
I can say without any problem that the Bible never praises any of these individuals for their lying. The Bible does not do that. Rahab is praised for her faith in God as shown by peacefully receiving the spies and asking to be spared. Hebrews 11.31 lists Rahab in the hall of faith, and it says, By faith the harlot Rahab did not perish with them that believed not. Why? Because she received the spies with peace. The idea, she's not praised for lying. She's praised for her faith in God. Her faith resulted in that she did not perish. It's interesting if you look at the account in Exodus 1, verses 17, and then read verse 20 with it, it shows that God blessed the midwives because they obeyed him instead of obeying Pharaoh. It mentions nothing about their lying. While lying to save someone's life from a murderer, which in both these cases would be true, that may be okay. Frequently, when people hid Jews from the Nazis, they would not be honest. And I don't have any problem with that. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But while that may be okay, if we begin to say God is okay with lying, if it accomplishes a greater good, we immediately cross a line. Do you understand that? We immediately cross a line. Many of the cults will justify deception if it brings in converts. They will outright tell their people, no, lying's okay if people come into our faith. Let such things never be said of us, or let it never be said of us that we support those who lie or are dishonest. That should never be something that comes out of our mouth as Christians. Now, Rahab's deception works, but now we're going to find out why she did what she did. So verse 7 says, and the men pursued after them, the Jericho soldiers, they pursued after the spies, the way of the Jordan unto the fords. One of the other reasons Jericho was so important was because of its proximity to an easily forded part of the Jordan River, because a road went straight east to west through this area. If you're ever in Israel with us, we can show you where that's at, because it's the same general area where John the Baptist taught and performed baptisms out there. It's funny, I always imagine John the Baptist like baptizing near Jerusalem, but he's way in the Jordan Valley. That's why it says the Jordan beyond Bethbara, where John baptized is actually the border today, modern day border between Israel and the country of Jordan. You can literally look at the river over and see the country of Jordan, wave at the soldiers, the Jordanian soldiers over there. He baptized way, way out there by this border crossing that even existed in that day. But it mentions here, verse seven, they pursued them. And as soon as they, which pursued after them had gone out, they shut the gate. They didn't want anybody else getting in, but as a result, what did they do? The spies were safely inside. The spies could do whatever reconnaissance they needed to. Now, they decide to get some sleep first, but Rahab interrupts. Verse 8, and before they were laid down, so they had made plans to sleep, get some rest, and then do whatever reconnaissance they needed to afterwards, but before they could get to sleep, she comes up unto them upon the roof. Why? Well, here we go. Verse 9. And she said unto the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that your terror is fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did unto the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side of Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we had heard these things, our hearts did melt, neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is a God in heaven above and in earth beneath. 
powerful statements here by her. Rahab explains her loyalty swap here. These were her own people. This was her country. This was her life. This was her city. And she's explaining to them why her loyalty has swapped. She says to them, listen, I know the Lord has given you the land. What? How does she know the Lord had given them the land? We'll get to that in a minute. But she explains, I know the Lord has given you the land and that your terror has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. The word there, faint, it means a state of emotional distress or fear with a focus that you don't have the power to resist that anxiety. All these nations are hearing about what Israel had done to anyone that stood in their path And they are so overcome with anxiety and fear for themselves that they cannot stir up the courage for a fight. They cannot stir up the courage to think that they can beat Israel. They are absolutely, as a whole, the Canaanites are convinced they're going down. So here's what she explains. Why do we believe this? Why do I believe this? Verse 10, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did unto the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side of Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. Do you catch that? These guys aren't afraid of being enslaved. They're afraid of being annihilated. They know what's coming. They know that God is judging them and they are terrified. And so she says, and as soon as we had heard these things, our hearts did. It's a different word, but it means the same thing as faint did up in verse nine. Emotional distress and fear, and we could not overcome it. We knew that we had no shot to beat you guys. Neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you. Why? Because the Lord, your God, He is God in heaven above, and here's the key, and in earth beneath. It's interesting, most pagan rituals back then were based on their idea that God, their God was a faraway being that needed to be roused to action. Remember when Elijah has the whole contest with the prophets of Baal, and they're dancing around, and they're cutting themselves, and all this type of stuff, and you know, Elijah has some fun with them. He goes, you know, you guys need to get louder. Maybe he's going to the restroom. He can't hear you. That's what, he, that's what Elijah says. He kind of mocks him a little bit. Go louder. Get his attention. Maybe he's sleeping. Wake him up. And they do. They get into this frenzy where they're just whooping it up, trying to get their God's attention to call fire down from heaven. But Rahab says, Jehovah God, your God? Oh, it's very clear that he's different. He's not just a God above. He's present here on earth too. And that terrified these people. Now, do you realize that our God isn't just in some celestial temple somewhere far away, but that he's active and working here? Do you you realize that? And do you believe that he wants to work in your life? If we ever doubt that, God proved it forever by becoming a man and dying for our sins. But he's always been active. He's been active from day one all the way up till now, and he'll be active all the way through to the end. Because he's not just a God above. He's a God in the earth beneath as well. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. You can't run. David said, where can I hide from your presence, O Lord? If I go to the depths of the sea, you're there. If I go up to the fly with the wings of the morning, you're there. The Lord, he is not just far. He's not somewhere far away. He is present here. Now, what Rahab describes, this fear 
that the Canaanites are experiencing. All of this fulfills God's promise that he made to Israel in Deuteronomy 2.25, where God said, this day will I begin to put the dread of you and the fear of you upon the nations that are under the whole heaven, who shall hear report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. God promised them that he would do this. Yes, they do face innumerable armies, like armies that outnumber them. They do face giants. They do face walled cities. But God says, don't you worry about that because I will make them afraid of you that they won't be able to fight you one-to-one. It'll be like you outnumber them because they won't have the heart or the courage to stand against you. Now let's return to Rahab for a moment. We talked about the Canaanites as a whole and what she described, but let's return to her. She doesn't say, we know. She says, I know that the Lord has given you the land. Again, everything that Rahab knew about Jehovah God was from those who'd been defeated by Israel, whether it was someone who had come from Egypt or someone from the Transjordan. Either way, that's the only way she knew about Jehovah God. But see, word hadn't just spread to her that an army was taking land. Word had spread that this God named Jehovah fought with that army that was taking land. And Rahab is absolutely convinced that this spells doom for her and everyone else. In this, she is no different than any other person in Jericho. She is no different than any other Canaanite that's afraid. The difference comes in what she says next in verse 12. Look at verse 12. She says, now therefore I pray you, Swear unto me by the Lord, by Jehovah, since I have showed you kindness, that you will also show kindness unto my father's house and give me a true token, and that you will save alive my father and my mother and my brethren and my sisters and all that they have and deliver our lives from death. The humility that we see here from her is powerful. It says, now therefore I pray you, which it's, it's just a one Hebrew word that means please. Now therefore, please, I beg you. That's what it means. This is a request. It's not a, a demand to be repaid. It's a request. And she says, swear unto me by Jehovah. That's interesting because she's not prior to this moment a worshiper of Jehovah. She has other pagan gods. She's probably made oaths by or received promises from others by. But she says here, you swear to me by Jehovah. That's the only oath she'll believe because that's the only God she trusts now. You say, how do you know that she trusts the Lord, Will? Because Rahab doesn't ask for herself to be spared. She already believes she will be spared. She asked for her family to be spared. She is a believer. She already believes that they will accept her as a follower of Jehovah. But what she's interceding for is for her family. See, she says to them, listen, swear unto me now by the Lord. Why? Since I have showed you kindness. That word kindness there, it's chesed. It's the Hebrew equivalent of agape, loyal love, devotion. It's the same thing that Israel was to have towards God and God had towards them. She says, I am treating you like one of your own people because I see myself as one of your own people right now. She says, since I have showed you this kindness, this loyalty, this loyal love, she asks then, give me a true token and show kindness, that same loyal love to my father's house. The true token is that they will show her family kindness in verse 13, that you'll save alive my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have and deliver our lives from death. I think this is one of the most precious moments in Scripture because we get an intimate look into the moment when an unbeliever has realized that judgment is coming and they've casted all their hope of salvation on the Lord. It's a pretty precious thing, isn't it? She realizes that judgment is coming. I am doomed unless the Lord spares me. 
What a precious glimpse into the inside of the conversion of an unbeliever, of someone who hadn't been a follower of the Lord, but now has become one. You see, how do you know that? Well, she proved it by placing herself at great risk with her own people, with her own king, to show loyalty to these spies instead of to her people. Why would she discard patriotism for her newfound faith? Why would she do that? Here's why. Because even though the rest of Jericho was terrified of God's judgment, they refused to repent. They continued in their idolatrous and sinful ways. They decided to fight God instead of yield to God. And see, she decides to go the opposite direction. And when that happens, when you've put true faith in the Lord, your loyal love for God must be greater than love for country or even family. Country or even family. Rahab trusted God to save her and her family. She knew God was great and mighty, but also merciful and kind. This is the same God we serve today. He is an awesome and mighty God, perfect in His judgments, and yet He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abundantly pardoning. Both the goodness and the terror of the Lord draw us closer to Him. He doesn't want to destroy us. He wants us to draw near to Him. This is the whole point of Jesus coming down, to take the penalty we rightfully owed upon Himself so that we can come to God and find mercy and grace. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.